power is an important thing to recognize. And so if we are people in business that have privilege and have power, we need to be actively finding ways to make sure that the voices of those who are not able to access some of the platforms we're able to access are finding channels to get there. Hello and welcome to The Forecast. I'm your host, Basil Demaroudis, and I'll be exploring the critical issues shaping the future of our cities, our buildings, and the spaces between, informed by our lens of sustainability and social impact. To explore what our industry must do to ensure a sustainable future, I'll be talking to prominent thought leaders outside the world of real estate, people who can give us a wider perspective from the world of technology, culture, arts, philosophy, business, and education. Together, we'll explore the critical factors that are influencing what our future society and cities will look like and the role that we all can play. Through these conversations, I hope you'll enjoy some bite-sized insights and get to know some fascinating people along the way. So today, purpose. What is it, where to find it, and how to turn it into your superpower? Uh, We're recording this during a B Corp month, actually. For those of you who don't know, what a B Corp is, stay tuned. It's a global movement of businesses who have chosen to prioritize people and planet alongside profit. Four is a certified B Corp, for example, uh, alongside many other firms here in the UK. So who best to be our tour guide today than Charmian Love? Char, uh, besides being a fellow Canadian, which uh, puts you already in good standing with me uh, and makes you extra cool, you're currently Global Director of Advocacy at Natura, the world's largest publicly traded B Corp. But really today, you're here in your personal capacity as an expert in the power of using business as a force for good, which we'll come on to later. Uh, but people may know you best for co-founding and chairing B-Lab UK, the group that oversees the B Corp movement here. But you've held so many roles in the space over the years. Currently, you're an associate at Oxford Net Zero, an entrepreneur in residence at the School Center for Social Entrepreneurship at Said Business School, something near and dear to my heart. You're on the Sustainability Advocacy Council at the Institute of Chartered Accountants. Most interestingly, you also co-founded uh, Volans in 2008, the change advisory business that itself was one of the very first B Corps here in the UK, together with John Elkington and the late uh, Pamela Hardigan. Uh, you've written for publications as varied as Wired, The Guardian, The Economist, Harvard Business Review, and you're a celebrated TED speaker. Welcome to the forecast jar. Oh my gosh, I'm kind of cringing at all those things, but thank you very much. Thank you. An impressive body of work. There is so much that I want to uh, get your opinion on and talk to you about, uh, and I'm not sure even where to start, but maybe uh, picking up your your backstory. Uh, help us understand your your purpose and how it moved from a curiosity for you, an intellectual uh, pursuit to to really a vocation. Where did that come from? Was that part of your, your backstory in Canada? Yeah. Well, I feel like if we're talking about Canada, I have to throw in a no doubt about it, eh? <laughs> well For all the Canadians out there. Um, well, it's really wonderful to be in conversation today, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to sort of some of the questions that I, I hope we're going to have a chance to cover today. And I love starting with the question about purpose and personal purpose. I mean, I was lucky enough to be raised in an incredibly passionate and dedicated family made up of a mom who's a lawyer and, you know, was at the Supreme Court when she was in her 30s. So like social justice has been really kind of core um, to our upbringing. And then I have a dad who was a climate activist before the days of the sort of activism we're seeing today. So he used to host 
funerals for rivers in Toronto back in the 70s. And I'm quite proud because he's one of the guys who coined the phrase reduce, reuse, recycle, which we hear all the time. So I grew up in a family of five kids, um, big, warm, wonderful family, and with a mom and a dad that both had very, very strong connections to both the social and the environmental side. So I'm incredibly privileged and, uh, and feel really lucky. And I think that really did shape me. When thinking about purpose, um, I think there's a lot of different ways to think about it. You know, you can look back to see the sort of influences you've had. And as I say, I've been really lucky to be surrounded by incredibly inspiring and purposeful influences. But I also know that finding your purpose is a journey you got to go on yourself. And I know I had a point in my career a few years ago where I was trying to figure out where I was best placed to spend my time, having had a, a couple of really interesting experiences in my career and in, in my sort of travels. And I sat down with a friend of mine, and she helped me uncover my personal purpose. And I'm going to start there because I think that is a really critical piece to anyone who's engaging in purpose in business, in purpose in government, in purpose in investing, in purpose anywhere, is to just really be able to tune in and, and know thyself. And this incredible coach went through this process with me, which is the NLP process, which stands for Neuro Linguistics Programming. And essentially what it has done is it's designed to help you uncover like your inner self. And to do that, they ask you a series of questions. And it's, it's yes about how you respond to the questions, but they actually also look at your body language in order to see like what, what does this really mean? Like what do you really believe? How do you flush at certain responses? How do your sort of micro gestures emerge? Anyways, long story short, after spending some time with this coach, what emerged for me was that my purpose was to create space for others and to share my energy. And that then became, after going through that process, sort of my North Star, where whatever I decided to spend my time on, I would always check that against, is this an opportunity or an experience that will allow me to create space for others? Is it a place where I can, yeah, I can share my energy? You know, again, having that family background, I think, gave me a really strong foundation and platform. And then going through this process to, again, just really uncover what is my special purpose, my, you, you used in your intro, the superpower, that has been a really critical force for me in, in figuring out where and how to best spend my time. It's an amazing story. And you, you talk a little bit there about um, advocacy. And I think when one thinks of advocacy, the, the sort of perceived somewhat darker side of it is, is um, activist. And I know you've talked about activism in your, in your TED Talk. You describe how the, that word really strikes fear in the minds of many. I think we, it conjures up this image of Birkenstock-wearing, long-haired folks who sleep late and use the word dude a lot. Uh, <laughs> without really uh, rehashing too much of, of what you've talked about previously on being an activist and activism, what really is the current state of, of activism now a, a year or two on from from when you last shared your thoughts with us. Oh, see, it's so interesting because I think things are changing quite quickly. And I think there is a, um, a range of perspectives that are becoming a little bit more open to when we, when we use the word activist. Um, but actually, it's a really good friend of mine who is the leader of an activist movement who gave me um, a really great definition of activism, which I'd love to share because it's what I kind of hold close when I start thinking about this work. Um, and that definition is activism or being an activist is, is about seeing what the edge is of something that makes you comfortable. So you see your own personal edge. Um, so you witness it, you see it, and then you have a willingness to be able to walk up to it and then you step over it. 
And the reason why I love that definition is because I think being an activist and activism is a relative concept. So for everybody, that line is going to be a little bit different. Um, for some people, it might be you know raising their hand and speaking up in a meeting that they might not otherwise speak in. Another might be going and having some time with their MP and sharing what they really believe. For others, it might be going and joining a protest. Um, but the point is that you are stretching yourself and moving beyond the line that feels comfortable. And uh, and I think that that's a, an important thing for us all to sort of lean into. And in some ways, you're right, there's almost this view that an activist is someone who, you know, is on the street all the time and, and maybe has a, you know, I, as you said, sort of there's these images of what an activist is. But, you know, I, I feel like I'm a business activist. I have a suit. I wear it, um, but I also try and channel that stretch and that view of trying to go a little bit further and really stretching myself and, and doing it with the foundational pieces of what I really believe. And what I believe is that we are in an extraordinary moment in history. And again, you use superpower in your earlier intro, and I, I think I'm really interested in that word power just generally, and, and I hopefully we'll, we'll be able to talk a little bit about it. But for any of us who have power, it's up to us to use it to its fullest abilities to be a force for good because we are living in an extraordinary moment and the decisions we make today are going to have extraordinary consequences. So I think we all need to get comfortable with being stretched and using that power for a force for good. I think it's uh, amazing to see how powerful your your personal purpose is and, and your sort of call to arms to all of us to, to find out what that is. Of course, we have to fit that in with the corporate model, and I want to turn a little bit towards the B Corp movement and uh, and your involvement there. Uh, of course, corporations are the apex predator of the modern economy in many ways. Would you think about the changes afoot to build a kinder, gentler ecosystem, given in mind it's B Corp month? Tell us exactly, first of all, what is a B Corp and, and how do you become one? Okay. Well, I'm happy to do that. And and again, happy B Corp month to you because it is <laughs> a, an important month to celebrate. There's how... a cake here in the middle of the table for those of us. <laughs> happy B Corp month to you. Um, and yeah, the theme of B Corp month is go beyond, which I think kind of fits into that sort of view of like what it is to be an activist. But I, I'd love to just sort of actually roll back. You said two things that I just wanted to pick up on. One is, you know, the call to arms and predator. And, and to me, those are sort of quite intense kind of, you know, predator goes after things and sort of devours. And and a call to arms is sort of, I think, a military reference. And one of the things that always attracted me to the B Corp movement was actually that it, it has a focus on positivity. And it's sort of a positive movement. And so I just want to sort of reflect that I think that this is about, yes, it's a call to arms, but it's a call to arms instead of fighting against something, it's fighting for something. And yes, there absolutely are predators out there. But I do think that there is something about how we have to truly rethink the entire vibe of how our systems work. And I certainly am attracted to the vibe that is about positivity. It's about coming together as collectives. And as you say, the predator at the sort of the top of the food chain. I think what we have to find ways of recognizing is that there's so many businesses out there and people in those businesses that actually have a power and we should find ways to really sort of support them and grow them. And that's what the B Corp movement really is all about. So I should sort of say that when I joined Natura & Co, I sort of 
you know, distanced myself formally from any sort of executive or governance role at B Lab UK. So I'm speaking purely as a champion of the movement. But the B Corp movement really is a movement, and it's a movement of people who are committed to using the power that they have as a force for good. And what you need to do to become a certified B Corporation is three things. <laughs> you have to go through a very rigorous assessment process that looks at a whole range of things related to how your business operates. So it looks at how you think about your workers, what sort of governance you have in place, how you think of about the people that are in your supply chain and how your supply chain works um, and your environmental impact. But it also looks at what your business model is and so what your uh, the positive externalities or the positive impact that are created um, through your business. And and what you do is you go through that assessment, you end up with a score, and if that score is over 80, then you get to um, move to the next phase, which is really about embedding it into your legal articles. And that's where uh, a really important part about being a certified B Corporation, which is that you really are signing up to being part of a collective, you're signing up to really embedding this work into the DNA by by changing your legal articles or depending on which jurisdiction you're in, transferring over to a benefit corporation in some places. So that's a really important piece. And then the third thing is you sign this declaration of interdependence. And that's a, a really, and I think, important part of the journey as well, because you're signing up to a series of principles that guide the movement. And those principles include things like transparency, uh, being held accountable to what you do, but also really importantly, continuous improvement. So, you know, you don't certify once as a B Corp and job done. Um, we know what it takes to be a leader is always changing and always stretching. And so you are also signing up to constantly pursuing a higher level of leadership um, by constantly improving your, your business. So that's a little bit about what a B Corp is. <laughs> and, um, you know, the process is not designed to be easy. It's designed to be really challenging so that it is a way to really and truly acknowledge and identify who are the businesses out there and who are the people in those businesses that are really driving the change that we need to see happen in the world. It's been incredible to really watch the growth. I think there's now something like 6,000 B Corps uh, in 80 countries across 150 industries. Important, I think, that a lot of industries have their own standards, but this is really cross-industry designed for anyone, anywhere. The UK is the second largest number of B Corps, I think over 1,100 B Corps, some 55,000 employees. So it's the it's the movement that no one's heard of, but literally is everywhere. Some of your your favorite brands that you buy in the in the shops may actually be produced by B Corps. So true. And actually, there's a funny story. I was just thinking about it this weekend when I was walking down our little high street in our little neighborhood. And I remember when we were first getting the B Corp movement up and going, the first time we saw the little B Corp logo go into a shop window that was on the high street. And I remember taking a ton of pictures and doing selfies in front of it. And it was just such an extraordinary thing because it hadn't been here in the UK and people didn't know what it was. And and here it was like bright red, you know, B Corp sign right in, in the window. And I think it was at Jojo Mama Bebe, if I'm not mistaken. That was sort of the first place where we saw it on our, our in our little neighborhood. And then this weekend when I was strolling down, all of a sudden I'm noticing there's a whole bunch of stores that have B Corp signs in the window. So that was like quite fun. And so you're right. It is still something that I think there's lots of room to grow because even though there are 1,100, 1,200 B Corps here in the UK, we know that there are a lot more businesses <laughs> than, than that. So it's still a small percentage. But what is great is to see that, you know, the businesses that have certified are, you know, showcasing the B, um, which sort of is the indicator of being a B Corp very, very proudly. Um, and when they're a consumer-focused 
brand and there's a way to engage with people, you know, walking down a street. It's really exciting to see that I think that that is a reflection of the growth. It's it's a growth because it is growing in terms of the number of B Corps, but also I think the presence of it is growing too. You talk about um, the message this this month for B Corp month being we go beyond. It's a it's a, the theme for uh, for B Corps here. Is there a, a sort of a baseline level of ESG standards that you think that every company should be achieving? And, and what does we go beyond really mean um, in your mind? Well, so I'll, I'll answer those two questions maybe separately. The first one is what does go beyond mean? And I'll, I'll tie it back to, I think, what some of the things around activism is. And I know not all businesses will openly embrace being an activist, and that's okay. That's totally okay. But I do think you know the challenges that we're facing in the world right now require us to step forward and not just with like a tiny step, but more like a quantum leap. And if we are really going to be on the right side of history, we have to recognize that what is needed is something quite extraordinary and and I think in many ways quite different than what we necessarily have in our system right now. So I think Go Beyond is a shout out to say, let's all find ways to support each other and recognize that we have to stay, take these quantum leaps if we're really going to make a difference and, and really going to step into this moment with, with what it really needs. So that's, <laughs> that's the first part of that question. And so when it comes to ESG and, and what that means in our current context, I mean, one of the things I feel like is important for us to, to always put into context is that actually ESG, which stands for environmental, social, and governance, I really believe that the G should come first, actually, and that in the prioritization of that sort of those sort of acronyms, it's, it should be GES, because that's what I think every business needs to have in place, is the governance that enables people to take the decisions in order to achieve the environmental and social impacts that, again, not just B Corps, but all businesses, I think, have a, a responsibility to develop. So I think, again, the thing that I think every business needs to do is really have, again, those governance um, processes in place and um, the legal articles, um, which is why the Better Business Act, which is the campaign that, that B-Lab UK as well as others have been, have been involved in over the last few years is so important because what it's trying to do is really look at Section 172 of our UK Company Act and really make it so that it's absolutely clear and unambiguous that every business must be designed to advance the benefit, yes, of shareholders, but also stakeholders, and really being clear that those stakeholders are our workers, the workers of these businesses, um, the people that live in the communities that these businesses touch, and by way of thinking about the environment, also future generations. So I do think that that's something that every business should have in place. They should have a very strong G, and they should be able to walk the talk of that G by um, updating and changing their legal articles. And my hope is that the Better Business Act will pass, and that will be um, the new way that all businesses are going to have to operate. And I guess in some ways, it's a way for some of the B Corp values and principles to really go uh, mainstream beyond those 6,000 com- companies globally, 11, 1,200 in the UK, to really make it part of every business's mission. Yes. And so would you zoom out a little bit here around this this point from B Corps and B Lab and Better Business Act to really the, the bigger, broader message, which is, is really that businesses seem to have a purpose of their own, wider purpose of their own. Is it in your mind that businesses really need to be acting as a force for good? Or tell me a little bit about your thoughts there. Well, I love that this phrase business as a force for good is is out there. Like a lot of people are talking about it. But I do have a slight um, hesitation with it, I'll be honest with you, because when B-Lab started, the sort of tagline 
was people using business as a force for good. And it still is. Like that's the call from B-Lab is, is again, mobilizing and supporting and enabling people to use business as a force for good. Um, so I think one of the things I feel like is important for us whenever we hear the phrase business as a force for good is just to recognize that what makes a business a force for good or a force for bad, let's be honest, or probably in most cases a combination of the two, are the decisions that the people make inside it. But business itself is a, a legal entity, right? And so it is essentially filled with both the small everyday decisions and the big mega decisions that are made by people, which again is why I think those governance frameworks are really, really critical because what they enabled people to do is to use their power in taking those decisions so that that business is moving as much as it can be in the direction of a force for good. Do you think that that, that movement that you describe and that transition, is that really part of a, of a wider paradigm shift, you know, shift to a more purpose-led economy, pivot to purpose, perhaps driven by consumers or the people that sit within the business? Or is that is that maybe reading too much into it? Are we uh, on the cusp of something, a meta change that's going to define the next 20, 50, 100 years of business? I think we're already into the change, actually. I think that it, it has to happen. I mean, when we see the rising levels of inequality in the world, we see emissions continuing to rise, like we're not really heading in the right direction and we're going to have to figure out how we turn the ship around fast. Um, so I think it's it's inevitable, and I think we're already part of it. I think the B Corp movement, as well as other movements, I, I you know I know this is about B Corp, but I also think it's important to recognize there's a range of other movements out there that are embracing the same principles. And I really believe in the power of like all these different movements coming together with uh, in a in a movement of movements where we all sort of sing from the same song sheet, and and we have sort of a harmonized and sort of symphony of different voices showing what business and people in business can do to drive this change. So I absolutely think that this is um, something that we're already in the process of seeing. And I, I think 10, 15 years from now, um, we'll look around and see an incredibly different landscape of of businesses. It's always sort of scary to make projection, you know, predictions like this. But it's okay. It's what, no one's listening. <laughs> but what what I think too, when I when I start thinking about what the world could look like in ten to fifteen years, is actually there was some research done a few years ago, and I can't remember who did it. So it's always terrible to mention research and not be able to cite the people that did it. But I it, it struck me because it looked at the Fortune five hundred list. I think it was from nineteen fifty nine and compared it to 2019 or 2020. Anyways, the point is when you looked at that Fortune 500 list, I don't know, do you want to guess how many companies were on the list still over that period of time? Uh, less than 50, I bet. Da like around there. I, I yeah. think it's... It yeah, is... we've done it for the FTSE 100. Actually, we did, yeah. funny enough, we just updated it. So oh. FTSE 100, 1984, I think it came out. There's something like just 26 firms that are still in the index. Something like 15 firms have gone bankrupt or been split up and sold. Wow. Okay. I'm going to add that to my little like list yeah. of interesting points. Fact. Because fun facts. Fun facts. Fun fact. So I mean, I and I think it's about 10% if I'm not mistaken mm. from when you look at the Fortune 500, and and that like actually gives me a sense of like hope because there's still 500 companies. There's still 100 on the FTSE, right? And and what I think it represents is the natural churn of businesses. Um, so you either innovate or, you know, if you want to use that as a proxy for leadership, you, you fall off the list. Um, so I think that when we look at the changes that are going to come over the years in front of us, I think we're going to see those lists shift because the companies that will have value, the companies that we will be celebrating 
will be those that have found ways to solve these problems that are affecting all of us. Um, so I think the, that's that's what gives me hope. And and because it kind of links to this, I feel um, I want to share the other kind of interesting little um, insight that I, I picked up from some other researchers who were doing some work on zebras. And you know, we, we have this obsession about um, unicorns in a lot of markets, right? And they sort of reflect and say, well, unicorns are companies that have a billion dollar valuation that are privately held. But unicorns are actually mythical. Um, like, they don't really exist. And shh, don't tell anyone. Shh, but also unicorns, if you go even deeper into this, like, you know, they are, that's how they're defined is that a billion dollar valuation is kind of quite monolithic, right? Because like that's what they do. Whereas the zebras are, number one, real. <laughs> they also, zebras you know, travel in herds. So it's about collectives and many of them coming together. And they're black and white. And that, to me, is sort of like the purpose and profit coming together. So I'm super excited about what the future could hold because I think we will see more herds of zebras rather than a focus on these, you know, solo mythical unicorns. And that gives me hope. And here's another little fun fact. Do you know what they call a herd of zebras? An, a herd? No. A herd of zebras. It's called a, a, a dazzle. Dazzle. Yeah, I like a it. A dazzle of zebras. And then a herd of unicorns. Um, not that there are herds of unicorns, but if there were, um, they would be called a blessing. Wow. So I'm certainly more interested in like the dazzle of zebras. Gosh, I'm going to have to go home and tell my uh, my four-year-old girls all about unicorns. I've learned more today than uh, than I thought I would. But it's but it's interesting to kind of pulling together a few threads of what you've you've talked about. And I think one of the things that strikes me, I keep writing down, is is this word risk, personal risk, and 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 business risk. And you know, you sort of talk about uh, advocacy, stepping up to the edge of your comfort zone, maybe taking a peek across the line. Businesses entrenched in business as usual. Uh, the incumbents have uh, deeply entrenched uh, processes and programs and reasons for trying to uh, preserve business as usual. But yet, on the other hand, we have this growing body of evidence, as you very articulately uh, describe, that actually innovation doesn't come from the incumbents. The incumbents actually are usually so busy, stuck, focused on preserving the status quo that they've got this blind side. So I wonder, just again, just drawing this back to your comments around uh, movement of movements and, and system change and, collab- and collaboration. You know, how do we how do we mobilize the sort of smaller, less well organized forces, people, uh, champions, to really foster this kind of collective approach to business to challenge this safety and sanctity of business as usual? Mm, mm, that's such a good question. Well, first off, I just want to hit off like your point about risk, and I'd say the risk of not doing anything is so much greater. So I think that that's just an important frame. And and if anyone feels like they need to get a dose of that level of risk, I mean, there's lots of places that you can go out there to see, for example, the impacts that's already happening around the world when it comes to climate change, you know, the levels of inequality. So I, again, I'd say, I'd say there's massive risk, but and that risk is not doing anything at all. Um, I think that is the greatest risk that's out there. Um, I also just want to pick up because I think we've been using the words advocacy and activism somewhat interchangeably. And um, and if it's okay, I'd love to just sort of reflect on the definition that I use for advocacy because I think then it helps address the the question that you're asking. So um, having taken on an advocacy role recently, um, having come from the Beat Court movement and being an activist, I've been sort of really interested in in trying to understand the differences between those two words. And advocacy for me, where it's kind of come to in, in the sort of last year of my, my journey in corporate advocacy, is advocacy is about really understanding what are the things we want to take a stand on 
um, making sure those things are systemic in nature. Like so the systems change, the changes to the rules of the game. And the B-Lab UK team, I think, has done a brilliant job of really articulating when we say systems change, what is that? And the systems change, as B-Lab UK frames it, is about, yes, legal change and regulatory change, things like the Better Business Act, but it's also culture change. Because let's be honest, culture will eat strategy and <laughs> regulation for breakfast. So again, um, it's about recognizing that if we are going to take a stand on something, let's find ways to take a stand on things that are, are about the systems change that we know needs to happen. And in doing so, really recognizing the importance of changing the rules of the game, which are sort of the laws, the policies, as well as recognizing the importance of, of lining that with an overall culture change. Um, and lastly, and this speaks to the movement of movements, advocacy is not a solo sport. Um, this has got to be about finding ways to join forces with others. And those can be uh, partners and specialist organizations, NGOs, and, and we have a ton of them that we, we wonderful partners that we work with. It's about also working with our people. So internal advocacy is an important thing. Like how do we inspire a desire in the people <laughs> that work in our organization to similarly take a stand on, on the things that really, really matter to them? And so, yes, joining forces with others really is about Again, this idea of the movement of movements. Um, so I, I just wanted to frame that because I feel like we talked about activism as being, you know, that going to the edge and then being willing to go beyond, go beyond the edge to, to use B Corp language. Um, and advocacy is definitely connected to that. Um, but I think it also has sort of a, a, a somewhat nuance around um, how you identify what those things are you want to take a stand on. And, and again, systemic nature and, and how you join forces with others. It's interesting because there's a piece I've just had the real privilege of writing with um, really good friends of mine who are at Patagonia and Ecosia. And it's all about what does corporate advocacy look like in the 21st century? Um, and so we've gone on a bit of a journey, the three of us together, to try and really understand how we can frame advocacy for other businesses that want to engage in, in similar ways, knowing that not all businesses are necessarily Patagonia's or Naturinco's or, or Ecosia's. But one of the things we spent some time trying to define was a little bit of what are the principles that an organization that does want to engage in advocacy can use to sort of guide them on their corporate advocacy journey. And we had five A's that we used because, you know, frameworks were always important. Um, that's one of the many, many great lessons I learned from John Elkington, which is, you know, to really find ways to communicate effectively some of the things that are, are sometimes a little bit harder for people to understand. But the five A's of advocacy are, number one, to have uh, be authentic. So making sure you're able to recognize where you've come from and where you are and and to be able to, to advocate on the basis of that authenticity. Uh, number two is to have ambition. And as I said, you know, we, we know that you know, we, when Sir David Attenborough, when it comes to climate change, we cannot be radical enough. So we really do need to set high level of ambition. The third A is agency, which is, again, this idea of how do we inspire a desire in the people within our organizations to take action themselves. Number four A is activism. And that is the reason I've kind of gone through this is to me, that's where advocacy and activism link up. So activism is, is a part of advocacy. Um, and that involves working with social movements, um, and really sort of finding ways to, to make yourself uncomfortable and stretch. And then the last A is allyship. So it is recognizing that we must do these things together. We must um, work in partnership and coalition and very actively collaborate. 
Um, but allyship also has roots in the social justice movement um, because kind of coming back again to your original framing, power is an important thing to recognize. Power and it's linked to privilege. And so if if we are people in business that have privilege and have power, um, we need to be actively finding ways to make sure that the voices of those who are not able to access some of the platforms we are able to access are finding channels to get there. And that means in many cases turning over our platforms to others. I think that's a great framing, and uh, thanks for walking us through that. When you think about some of your peers like Patagonia and others, that many other successful businesses that have been built with purpose really in their foundation, is there a business case for purpose? I mean, surely the argument here is, is not to sacrifice profit for purpose, but, but I guess the, is the opposite true? Can we actually create higher profit from purpose? It's a bit of a, of a four-letter word sometimes, profit, in the purpose circles. You know, it, it's sort of the thing that you shouldn't really be focused on. We have to be purposeful. We have to be conscious about what our decisions. But ultimately, we also should view this as a way to make money, no? Well, I'm a big believer in another principle that's from the B Corp movement, which is it's both and. And that's essentially what the B Corp movement was set up on, was this this sort of view that you can be both profitable and have purpose. So it's not about one or the other. It's about both and. And, you know, earlier on when you talked about the status quo and, you know, taking the, the, you know, the steps and I sort of mentioned the quantum leap, I feel compelled to sort of reflect. I don't know very much about quantum physics. Let me just put that on the table. What I know about quantum physics, I actually learned from a video from Justin Trudeau presenting at Waterloo a couple of years ago. And I'm not, it may have been a planted question, but let's okay. leave that aside. Well, see me after class. I'll help you out. Yeah. Oh, well, there we go. You can let me know if this reflection on Justin Trudeau on quantum is is correct. But essentially, he got asked the question, you know, what is quantum computing? And his response was, well, our traditional systems operate on a binary basis, like it's either one or a zero or on or off. Um, but what quantum enables is for a greater level of processing and complexity because of the possibility that particles and waves can coexist. And in that sort of possibility of, of a coexistence, that's what opens up a huge new exciting field. And so when we think about the quantum leaps we need to take to fix our system so that it is inclusive and equitable and regenerative, I really like this idea of really using what we are putting so much hope in, like from a computing perspective into the future of quantum and applying it to our own mindsets and applying it to how we think about how we take decisions in business. So again, it's about recognizing that it's not about one or the other. It's about the possibility of exciting new potentials that come from holding the both and. And by the way, it's not just profit and purpose. There's so many other ways in which I think we can lean into this sort of quantum mindset of, of both and. Um, it's about being, yes, hopeful about what the future can hold for us, but also deeply rooted into the urgency of the time that we're living in. So how do we hold those two emotions together? And I know there's a lot of talk about like work-life balance. It's, it's like, how do we make sure we're bringing the values or our personal purpose, like what we are put on the planet to do into the decisions and into our workplaces rather than necessarily thinking of those two things as, as being separate? So again, I, I, I'd answer that question with almost the sense of the possibility that comes if we really stretch ourselves and unlock new sort of wells of creativity by embracing this idea of what's possible when you consider the both and the and together. I think we can be encouraged that actually this notion sounds novel, but actually it's been around for a long time, this kind of concept of 
meaning as an equal counterpart to financial compensation and motivating the average person to, to come to work and do what they believe in every day. It's something really has been around in research since the since the 70s. So I think again we should take uh, take a look back and and remind ourselves that this is not necessarily something new. That uh, work is about a search for daily meaning as it is, as much as it is about search for daily bread. Is meaning the new money here, do you think, just dr- drilling down on that a little bit for the average person in the average job? How important is this search for meaning, in, especially, and again, in such a time when we've got financial crises, uh, pressure on uh, real tangible financial pressures for, for almost everyone? Yeah. It's funny because I'm sort of trying to resist making a comment on that when I like I don't know the lived experiences of so many other people. So it's hard to make like a broad-based general assumption when different people are possibly, well, inevitably <laughs> feeling different things about this moment. But I would say from a generational perspective, and again, this is a generalization, and I'm always sort of a little bit hesitant about doing that, but, but I do think we're seeing in young people a real recognition of they want to have the both ends. They they want to be able to, yes, be engaged in, in work that enables them to have a, a quality of life and they want to have meaning. And I, I think that that will inspire huge amounts of creativity and innovation. So I do think that this is a hugely exciting time because young people are feeling things and wanting to do things differently. Um, and I think that what we'll see is this is important to them. And they are, oh, there's an expression from, I think, Canadians, science fiction writer. It's like the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. And that's Sir William Gibson. And I think that the young people today represent that future, that like they're here, they're sharing with us what's important to them, which is this sort of blending of these two things. Um, so that's what gives me a lot of excitement about where things could go next. Incredibly positive story. If I just play devil's advocate for a, for a second, I think one of the things that we always feel pushback on and see whether it's in popular press or it's this notion that ESG is somehow a tax or you've got uh, people like Tariq Fancy, who was was formerly the head of uh, ESG investing at BlackRock, labeled ESG at the firm, not my opinion. His views was just a label. The firm slapped on funds to charge higher fees. But this this whole notion of greenwashing or purpose washing, as the case may be. I don't think we could have a conversation like this without really uh, uh, at least acknowledging that the the kind of counterfactual here, which is that there is a big portion of society which is pushing against the notion that that purpose matters and, and that we are entering a more purpose-led economic future. What would you say about those that are pushing the the anti-ESG agenda, mm. if you will? You know, you mentioned greenwashing, and I think it's also important to recognize there's a lot of other green stuff going on, right? There's green washing, there's green hushing. So it's organizations that are afraid to talk out about what they're doing because of the risk of pushback. There's green rinsing, <laughs> there's green shifting. <laughs> so there's there's a lot of things to be aware of that are out there that are part of the wider context for, for organizations that are engaging in this space. But I kind of come back to the governance piece. So the thing that I would sort of really focus on in my response is that if a company is really genuinely in this to drive change, then change your legal articles. You know, And that's what all 6,000 B Corps have done. Actually, there's more businesses than just B Corps that have done that because those who have 
become a benefit corporation in some of the jurisdictions where that's an option. They're not necessarily B Corps, but they can have the legal structure of benefit corporation. And here in the UK, as we talked about with the Better Business Act, the hope is that that would be something that would become, you know, the default for all businesses would have this in place. And so I would say that that's the best way to really counter the greenwashing agenda is to make it the default. And, you know, again, I'm not naive. There are these other opinions that are out there. Um, I do think we have to listen hard about what's underpinning some of those challenges to the ESG movement. And, and so that, I think, is a critical piece because it's not as if, like, it's, it's not as polarized as good and bad, you know, ESG supporters and ESG deniers. I mean, I think there is a recognition in the world that people want to create a world that's better for their kids and different people have different opinions on the best approaches to do that. But that's where I think in order to really overcome some of the divisiveness and the polarity and the fighting that's happening, um, we just all need to be able to listen really hard and understand what is underpinning that. And my hope is that as we as we go deeper and we understand sort of more of the why people have particular opinions, we might not always agree, but hopefully we'll have a, a sense of deeper understanding and through that deeper understanding move through some of this complicated times where it feels like it's oppositional rather than coming together, which is what we ultimately are going to need to do if we're really going to drive the systems change that's needed. And, you know, I know I've talked about, (laughs) I've quoted Sir David Attenborough and William Gibson, and I would be remiss if I didn't quote the incredible Greta. And when she was in London um, with her book launch, I remember she said, to change everything, we need everyone. And I'm sort of holding that quote, very, very close to my heart, especially when it comes to trying to understand people that have different opinions. Mm, Powerful. Well, let's turn to the future and um, bring this a little bit back to our cities and the world that that surrounds us. And I totally appreciate that you're not a a real estate expert, but that's not going to stop me from asking your your opinion anyways. Do you see the rise of of purpose and purpose economy as having an influence um, not only on companies, but the on our buildings, our cities, the places where business unfolds. If it, surely in a retail perspective, yes, but but more broadly. Yeah, well, I mean, and I'm, I'm definitely not a property expert, but you know, my purpose is about creating spaces <laughs> for others. So I feel connected to the physicality of how you design places and spaces that enable people to find each other and find magic and find purpose in what they do. So again, not being an expert, I do sort of feel how important it is. One of the things that I think is going to be really important as we look towards the future is is recognize the importance of coming together in our communities and and being kind of very hyper-local in some ways. Not every way. So again, I don't want to be generalizing things, but but that's where the spaces that are created, the buildings, the, you know, physical, the infrastructure is is going to have a really important role because ultimately those are the spaces where people will find each other, they'll have meaningful conversations, they'll connect to themselves in ways that help them see the world maybe in a different way. Maybe it helps them stretch into deeper levels of advocacy, maybe even activism. So I do think that there is a really important role for those who are in this important industry, um, which is building the spaces, creating them, and making sure they're filled with the sort of values and the principles and the energy that will help people be the best that they can be and in being the best they can be, using their power as a force for good. Amazing. 
as our time together uh, soon draws to a close, I, I want to just come back to something that you told me uh, previously, and I, and I wrote it down because it, it really made an impact on me. And you, and you said that if we are to succeed in tackling the existential climate and social crises before us, that, that we need to be what you called fiercely determined and find inner wells of courage, and which reminded me of this, this quotation that we procrastinate not out of laziness, but out of fear. Mm. Your thoughts? Yeah. It reminds me of a phrase, you know, you get analysis paralysis where you, you can't move forward because you're trying to make sense of things all the time. So I studied art history. That was mm. sort of where I started um, when I was in university in Canada. And I remember Jackson Pollock was my favorite artist. And in many ways, the world feels like a Jackson Pollock painting, right? It's really chaotic. And some people can look at a Jackson Pollock and be, I don't know if fear is the right word for it, but they don't like it or it feels too complicated or they feel they have to look away. And that's fine. Everyone should have their own response and, you know, everyone will have their own coping mechanisms. But Jackson Pollock painted to jazz music. And if you look at a Jackson Pollock and imagine or even listen to jazz music in the background all of a sudden and you see a rhythm to it. And somehow I know how I look at a Jackson Pollock changes when I hear a beat or a rhythm and all of a sudden the painting opens up in a different way. And so I think Again, not wanting to be <laughs> telling people what to do because that's not um, that's not necessarily a helpful energy. But if we are feeling fear, uh, I would encourage people to try just maybe think about what are sort of some of the other ways of looking at the problem and and finding a different form of rhythm. And if you feel so compelled, you know, Ecosia, and I'm not going to say Google, but you can Ecosia, which is a B Corp, Jackson Pollock, and just look at some of his works of art and try and think about like what what you see and how it makes you feel. Because um, your immediate response might be, oh, this is chaotic and this is complicated. But if you look at it a little bit longer, maybe with some jazz music in the background or maybe not, you can start seeing different things. And I once did this with some students and one of them was brilliant. It was a, a social worker from Hong Kong. And when looking at the Jackson Pollock piece, I asked him, what does he see? And he said, it looks like I'm lying under a tree watching sunshine through the branches. And I thought, mm. what a poetic way of of seeing something positive and beautiful and natural and almost calming in a way that other people see chaos and complexity. And and both are right answers, um, but it's how do you want to like step into the moment that we're in? And I certainly feel what brings out the best in me is when I'm around people that see joy and see hope and see possibility and see the light shining through the trees. That, I think, is what I would encourage people to do. So not not to not be afraid, but to hold that emotion and see if there's something else there that you can lean into. So glass half full or half empty? Ah, well, naturally overflowing. Um, <laughs> but also, again, kind of going back to the quantum, I'm going to have to be really careful with my enunciation here. So just, you know, from some of the communities of activists that I've spent time with, I sometimes get accused of being high on hopium. <laughs> That's hopium. <laughs> and I've thought really long and hard about that because I am a positive person by nature. I think having been an entrepreneur, having started things like you have to be optimistic. You have to imagine that you can you can do things. But it's complex, right? Because we are facing like really, really tough stuff um, that we have to figure out. We can't ignore it. We have to find ways to in, engage in it. So I'd say my my optimism is slightly more complicated than maybe it was uh, if you had asked me that question a couple of years ago. Um, and I'm really inspired by Christiane Figueres, the podcast that she and Tom Vikarnak and Paul Dickinson run, which is called Outrage and Optimism. And I love this because it is kind of leaning into the quantum. It's not about just being totally optimistic and sunshine and rainbows and everything's going to be awesome. 
It's about being outraged and in some ways sort of recognizing you have the capacity of being both and. You can be outraged and optimistic at the same time. So my natural response is, of course, like my glass overflows, but I also hold this sort of complexity of it's not just that everything's going to be awesome. Like we're going to have to work really hard at it and we need to be able to channel the intensity of the moment that we're in in order to really make sure that the optimism is founded in, in action. What a perfect place to pause. Shar, thanks so much for being with us today. I can't thank you enough. Thank you. This is a great conversation. So we'll also put a link in the show notes for those who want to learn more about some of the topics that we covered today. Well, that's all the time we have for the show. I'm Basil Demarudis, and you've been listening to The Forecast. Thanks for tuning in. Forecast is brought to you by Four Partnership, the purpose-driven real estate investment firm that proves you can do well by doing right. Subscribe to the Four Partnership newsletter at fourpartnership.com for more insight and opinion.